Kai Akroiso, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week we're very pleased to have as our guests ex-Glamorgan and Sussex batsman and former professional footballer with Swansea City Tony Cotty and his childhood friend and professional writer David Braley. We got them both together to talk about the book they co-wrote all about Tony's sporting life. There's only two Tony Cotties. Before we could talk about the title and other book-related matters, I asked them both about their early life growing up in the village of West Cross on the beautiful Gower Peninsula. Well, for me, uh, father was Port Ainham, born and bred. Moved to Three Crosses when I was just after I was born. And um, I met I met Dave, I think, when he came to Three Crosses when we were about seven or eight. Well, we had a, a little area called, we used to call it the bank, which was a green area by the, by the school. And everyone used to congregate around there. We'd talk in 74, 75, somewhere around there. Someone would have a pair of pads. Someone would have a bat. Someone would have a ball for the cricket side of things. And and we'd knock on everybody's house and we'd all get a game of about 12 a side on, on, that, on that bank. And similarly with the football, you know, it was very, uh, very much you're allowed to stay out until the sun came down and, and you know, make your own fun. So it was, it was fantastic, really. Yeah, it's um, it's funny looking back. My memory is that um, when I went to the school, Christ Primary School, um, I was put next to Cots. That's that's how I remember it. So, um, and then that day, uh, which was my first day in school, I had a knock on my front door at about sort of four o'clock, and it was Cots and another friend of ours called Gwynball Weeks with a football, uh, just asking me to the new lad, you want to come and have a kick about? And we went up to the bank, as Cots said, and. And it went from there, and, and it's it's there's going to be a lot of corny stuff tonight, but it's all true. And and Cots and I have been best mates since that day, really. And um, it's all based through sport. But growing up in a village, there's no sort of age difference. You know, we'd be eight, nine years of age playing football with fifteen year old boys. I'm sure Cots agrees. You you become better at sport then. Yeah, it was just a magical time. And sporting heroes for you both at that time were they local ones, Swansea ones, or, or, or Welsh ones, or, or, or from further afield? Who, who did you talk about and who did you kind of think about when you were playing? We used to get the Rothmans book, which was just an encyclopedia. came out every year of who was playing, all the teams from each of the First Division games and everything. I mean, I was a massive lead supporter um, until I found Swansea, really, as, as a team. I loved Peter Lorimer, the team of the 70s. Um, my dad took me up to Ellen Road, took about, I think, six hours to get up there in 1974 when they won the league. The only game they lost was that game, 4-1 at home to Burnley. Leighton James played, who I later joined at the Swans. And I was a massive lead supporter. So Peter Lorimer sadly passed away. Like, like a lot of that, he said, recently has passed away. Uh, Jack Charlton and um, and the like. So, so yeah, that was that. They were my heroes with in, with regards to football and and with cricket. There was only one really, um, Viv Richards. Simple as that. And I was, as you know, I was very fortunate to play with him. Then uh, some, oh, I don't know, long ago, <laughs> twenty years later, I suppose. I'm glad you mentioned the Rothmans book because I, when I go into schools, that's I take that actual book in. Cot said when I had one. It's quite funny because these days people tend to get a bit obsessed about reading ages for, for children. So if you're nine, you should be reading a book for a nine-year-old. Well, the Rothmans book was for journalists. And uh, Cots and I would go to each other's house with our book and we would test each other. You know, we'd sort of say, right, you know, you've got five minutes to read about Barry or Burnley, whoever it was. And then you'd have to close the book. And then I'd ask him, right, who's the, who's the current manager? What's the address of the ground? And who's their leading scorer? 
and you, we just learn so much. You know, you, you don't just learn about football, you learn about geography. You learn about, you know, the number of people in a squad and, and the understanding of, oh, that guy only played three games this season. He played 42 last season. And, and for me, I had a family connection in terms of heroes with, uh, with the Swans because my, my granddad's best friend was Harry Griffiths, who was the, uh, the manager of the Swans um, from about 75 till Toshak came in 78. And he'd been at the Swans, you know, forever, really. So I met Harry as a seven, eight-year-old kid in my grandparents' house, you know, once or twice a month. And uh, and he got me in, got me to meet the players in the dressing room when I was about eight. And so I I was obsessed with Kurt, Alan Curtis, Robbie James, um, and then obviously Tosh when he came. And then, as Cotton remember, quite a few of them ended up living in the village. So Tosh came to live in the village. Um, Mick Gormazov was already there, and he'd played for the Swans in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I do remember Cots Eddie May was living in in Cloyndale yeah. in the village, and yeah. we'd literally knock their door, you know. And sometimes they they'd come and have a kick about with us. Sometimes they just sign an autograph and stuff. So, yeah, those those are the heroes. And as Cot says, Viv Richards, I think everybody loved him because I don't think the game had been played that way, certainly in batting, um, until he came along. And did you graduate into secondary school together, or did you go to separate schools? No, we we went uh, Bishopston. We would have gone to Galton. Bishopston was a new school that was one year old. We were the second intake, which took in Pennard, Bishopston, Three Crosses and South Gower. So it was a very new school, a smaller school than Gowerton, which was fantastic. Everything shiny, trying to, trying to make a mark, you know, especially sporting wise. And we had a, um, a PE teacher, Arwen Harris, who sadly passed away, you know, was a massive influence on me. Didn't didn't really play cricket at all. Didn't play football at all. He was a number eight for, I think, Neath and Pontypridd. So everything did revolve around rugby, but he allowed me to have my head. And basically, as a, with the cricket, he allowed me to pick, not far off, pick the team, coach the team and, and, um, and, and captain it because he obviously knew we had a, quite a good side. And, um, and he, he allowed me to have a bit of a, f- a free reign, which, again, a little bit like playing against kids older than you in your village. Give me a, a huge head start. Yeah, it, it's funny because... 77 we we went to to Bishopston and there was there was only one year ahead of us so we never had that sort of fear of an 11-year-old kid with with 16-year-olds uh, running around causing terror in, in the schoolyard it was ridiculous cuts wasn't it you know there were so many talented cricketers so many talented rugby players and footballers that every team that we played in both for Croyson and then for three crosses ended up winning stuff um i got to the age of 16 certainly in football without really understanding what it was like to lose games with any sort of regularity. And Cotsby too too shy to admit this, I guess, but he he stood out from the age of nine and ten as a as a footballer in football matches, you know. He was head and shoulders above us and also probably more so in cricket. He got a hundred when he was well, we were still in Christ when he got a hundred. And for a eleven year old kid to score a hundred, you know, I look back now with absolute fondness of, of both and um, we were very very lucky to to grow up where we did and, and go to school where we did yeah I mean you, you say that going into um, that school it wasn't it wasn't as hard as if you had 16 years but the worst thing Arwen Harris did all through my through my life really was he picked me to play scrum off in the in the year above and I went down like a lead balloon and that was my first uh, first hiding really in a, in a schoolyard proper because I mean when you're 12 and by a 13 year old it was uh had a bit of idea, so uh, I wasn't all that fast in rugby either, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, throw, throw a few ropey old passes at the number 10 so we get back in my own year group. One of the things that often happens to youngsters when they're playing is that they have a mate 
a good mate that becomes almost a challenge to them. A chap called Chris Lewis, uh, Tony, who's mentioned in your book. But tell us a little bit about Chris and, and your kind of rival, sporting rivalry with him, if you like, as you went through school. Yeah, Chris was the um, first person to have a beard, you know, in school. He was, uh, he was the man when he was like 12, 13, really. You know, he never grew after he was 13. And he, he was just physically, he was just, you know, he was just head and shoulders above everyone. And, uh, and he, he was a good, top rugby player. He played for Swansea Schoolboys under-15s football when he was a year young and played for Wales as well. Um, and he got ahead of me at the stage where I didn't grow. And I struggled through those, those years of about 14 and 15. Chris was a good cricketer. He, pro- he probably wasn't as talented a cricketer as the other two sports, but I, I still, to this day, think that if he had put his mind to it um, at one of those sports, he, he, he would have been a professional in, in one of the winter sports, football or, mm. or rugby. I'm pro- probably more talented in rugby, I would think. He lived next door to me. I moved, I moved down to, to next door to him um, when I was 10 or 11, I think. Which was about half a mile, three quarters of a mile from where Dave lived. So not, nothing really changed. We still went back up to the village to do all our our sport and, and everything. But yeah, it's it's always good to have someone pushing you like that. And and also, you know, because of the physical side, it was my first kind of taste of what it's like when you haven't got the physical attributes and you still need to compete. Um, so it was a good grounding for me. One of the common threads in the book is the importance of family. Um, I was wondering if both of you could just say a little bit more. You've already mentioned your dad, how important uh, mum and dad were to your development as a professional sportsman. And then after perhaps Dave, uh, you know, the influence of your parents on uh, on your kind of career as you grow older. Uh, far the biggest influence of my life, you know, with regards uh, values, um, without a shadow of a doubt. And um, he, he had a really uh, stressful, long job. You know, he, he started a haulage company. He was up at four o'clock in the morning, finished coming in at seven o'clock at night uh, for five days a week. Saturday morning was his lorries were off the road, so he'd help the mechanic. But yet every Saturday afternoon, he dressed me in my whites and he'd take me to his, he'd play for Swansea second stroke first, put more, more second team than first team. And I'd be on the, I'd be on the periphery with all the, the uh, from six, seven years of age with him throwing balls at me. I got, I got actually got spotted in a similar scenario at St. Helens later on. But ultimately, I look back on that and that was his day and he still used it with me. On a Sunday, he'd be out the back garden at five years of age and throwing balls at me for the cricket. And next door would say, oh, do you think he's going to play for England, Bernard? And all that, you, you know, there was a little bit of why you're doing it in that, in that era. But he was, he was the first one, certainly, who honed, honed my love of sport. Just to give you an idea of when I got worst moment of my life, and it still shapes me a little bit now, is when I got released by Swansea City by recorded delivery at 19. And I I, I played a couple of games that summer for Glamorgan um, very early on and did quite well. And I was offered a summer contract, but I had a winter to work. And and basically, my father said, right, you can come and work for me as a grease monkey in the in the haulage company, 35 quid. And you're playing for Merthyr, 50 quid, Southern League. He said, but you're going to, going to have to sign on. Uh, I'm not putting you through the books. You sign on every fortnight. He said, get down there because you're not going to mess the second one up. Now, I've I got to be honest, in today's world, that's very, very tough love, okay? But but it shaped me because that was a time where I needed a kick up the arse, really, to you know to make sure. Not, not that I, I was on my laurels or anything, but it was such a heavy blow because football was, is still my first love. And um, and, to, and to be released by him crying when he saw he, he opened the letter... Is something that stands me, but his reaction to that was right. That's gone. Let's make sure now that you understand that this second chance is a real opportunity. And um, 
So as I said, you know, he, he, he instilled values in me that, uh, that that I, you know, obviously still got. Yeah, my story is slightly different. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I moved to the crosses because my parents divorced uh, when I was eight or nine, uh, whatever it was. And the, the odd thing about that, when I look back on it now, is that in the seventies, being from a divorced family wasn't wasn't common, you know. But to me, it it literally didn't matter because that. That's all I knew. So I never had an issue with it. It, it was just the way it was. And, and my mum, probably, she's still with us, probably the most resourceful woman there's ever been. You know, uh, money was a bit tight when, when they first uh, divorced. It, I never went without anything. My sister didn't go without anything. She just had this way of, of creating things, um, whether that was, you know, food or stuff for school. She was incredible. I wish actually I was as resourceful as she is because I am useless at pretty much everything. But uh, but my dad, on the other hand, then the relationship was quite um, quite strange in a way because in those days there was these sort of court order things, which meant that I could only see him one day a week. That was the the kind of rule, uh, and that was always a Saturday, which is obviously sports day. So from the age of nine until I was sixteen my dad never missed a game of football uh he'd be and in those days as well Cots, you remember we used to play for the school sort of half nine kickoff saturday morning and then for dumb and three crosses up as 12 kickoff uh in the afternoons so you play two games in three or four hours and the first game might have been um at bishopston and the second game might have been up at sort of winch went so um, um my dad never missed a game um so we had this incredibly strong sporting connection and then after then because when you you play sort of young uh, youth football or, or, or cricket or whatever, the the kickoff is early. So uh, after that, then we'd be down the vetch if the Swans are home for a three o'clock kickoff, or down the whites to watch um, uh, Swansea at St Helens. So um, our friendship and our our kind of um, uh, relationship, if you like, developed one hundred percent through sport. And I look at it now as as hugely important, really, because I had a a kind of a homely relationship with my mum, who I idolised because, you know, I, I understood the the kind of um, sacrifices she was making to, to give me and my sister a great life. And then my dad gave me this incredible love of sport. And, uh, um, yeah, and the funny enough, the first uh, children's novel I wrote, um, Champion of Champions, is based on a, on a kid growing up in Three Crosses who's got divorced parents. And in that book, the relationship between the son and the father is based on on kind of a hatred thing where the boy doesn't like his dad. And I just got the idea because because I loved my dad and I just thought, well, what would my life have been like if I didn't like my dad? I'd still have to see him once a week and then I would resent that day. So I kind of flipped my own life story on its head to, to make a, a storyline for, for that book. And one other thing I should say about my mum as well is that she absolutely encouraged me to read so you know if we went shopping to Kilay for example she'd drop me off at the library in, in Kilay or make sure I was always reading something and then and we'd probably talk about this later on but that's the kind of thing I guess that was um, uh, making me become a writer was the, the number of books that she'd encouraged me to read. One of the things I was interested in uh, Tony was the, the, the column that you wrote for the South Wales Evening Post um, which David eventually kind of or, or collaborated with you on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about? It's like most um, sportsmen, I suppose. You, when you come to the end of your career, you, you know, when I was up in uh, Sussex, I had to go back to Wales. My family was back in Wales. And at the start, again, I was very lucky that uh, uh, another really good friend of mine, Anthony Rees, um, his wife got me an interview as a training advisor uh, in a college. Well, my salary went down by two thirds. 
So I, I kind of proed in the leagues, semi-proed playing. I did a lot of after-dinner speaking. Um, and the, the um, Evening Post approached me, uh, Chris Peregrine, Richard Thomas, uh, would, would you do um, would, would you do an art, you know, like a column on... on um, I was also commentated for BBC Wales on the Glamorgan Games as well. So it was just trying to get as many... Uh, keep, in, keep involved in sport, obviously, but also boost my earnings and, and start again, if you like. So, um, so I was asked to do that, and it was yeah, it's fantastic. It was, it was all it, was, it wasn't just cricket; it was about all sport. You know what was happening at the time, and but like when we did the book, really, me and Dave, we we used to catch up and have a chat about what happened that week. For me, as a writer, that was the most important thing for me because um, I remember Cotts saying that you'd been approached and said, "Look, do you, do you want to do it with me?" Sort of thing. And then we spoke to the the, the editor, the Union Post, and he said, "Yeah, it's going to be. I think we're three three parts Cotts. When it? it was a two fifty word." something like a 450 word and then like a 1200 word. So three different bits. So three different subjects each week. And I had to learn that Cots would obviously have his opinion. So let's say Nasser Hussain has been picked as England captain, whatever it might be. So obviously Cots and I would meet up, we'd talk about it so I could understand Cots' view on that. And then I would then obviously transcribe and write how, how Cots felt about it. Um, but because we know each other so well, I was able quite quickly to, to write in his voice, I suppose. But, the discipline I gained from that, knowing that it, this had to be 1,200 words or 800 or whatever it was we were told, was massive for me. Um, yeah, I, I, what I do remember is you, you used to pout a lot if they left the sentence out. Yeah, absolutely. You say, <laughs> <laughs> you're very precious. You're very precious. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Really good fun, that. Let's talk about it then. The idea of the book, where did that come from? Did it come from one of you to begin with or just through your uh, general kind of chat? It was, it was definitely through through Dave, without a shadow of a doubt. I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't have done a book. I, it's one of the best things I've done, I have to say, because it was fantastic reliving them, and I still read a bit of it now and again. But yeah, it was Dave's idea from the fact I did a lot of after dinner speaking and had a lot of kind of anecdotal stories that we thought we if we did a book, it wouldn't be a statsy type of book. It, it would have to be a fly on the wall where if you'd have played in that dressing room, so you you would have been able to come up with 50% of that book because it was about being part of that Glamorgan side, Sussex. And then in the end, you know, my views on the game to a certain degree. But ultimately, Dave, it was Dave's idea. And we decided what he has got, he's got very much like a photographic memory. And we used to go on a bike ride for about an hour, hour and a half. And he said, right, we'll talk about something. And it's quite hard to do that, to be honest. And we dr- I drift off into something else. And then it would be a different subject. So it didn't matter. He was just gleaning anecdote after anecdote and thought after thought. And then every, say that was on a Sunday, by about Wednesday, he'd written me an email with about 20 pages on it. And I, I really used to look forward to reading that, reading the email. And, and it was just a load, a load of words at that stage, you know. Uh, but it was just great fun reading what we talked about. Um, and, and he has a knack for for and a lot of people have mentioned this, they said that it's like me speaking through the book. So Because we've been friends for so long, and he was party to a lot of the evenings that we had out or the games that I played and trips during wins and losses and things like that, that he he basically had a good idea of where I was coming from anyway on a lot of the stories. And not ad-libbed, but he had his own angle on it as well, which the, I, I, I'll, I'll go on to a little bit, but there, there was one story that I thought was just a pretty... Yeah, I thought it was quite funny or whatever, but the way it came back was absolutely outstanding. And I still, I use it in after dinners and things now because I never realised how funny it was until he, he'd actually written it. It was about Alan Butcher. 
Oh, uh, cones. Yeah, the, the, the cones he was driving, you know. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was a throwaway. I remember the Alan Bush, but it was such a funny. So when I look back, it was a really funny experience as well. And and um, so that, that that's that's how it started, the bike rides and everything. And and um, as I said, it was very much Dave's idea. That that uh, Alan Butcher story, where I'm sitting now, we went through it here, and we, you know, when you find something funny and it becomes too funny, and then you literally you just can't get it back, and you laugh and laugh and laugh, and then you cry, and then you stop, and you laugh again. That we were like it for ten minutes. It's one of the funniest moments of my my life. I'll never forget that. Um, but I think going back to the the book, the way I remember it, uh, John Agnew brought out a book. I think it was called Eight Days a Week. And it was a diary toward the end of his career as, as kind of like a, a job in pro and, and how, you know, through those six months of summer, you hardly have a day off. And I remember Cots had either, I think, was still at Glamorgan, but could have just gone to Sussex, I can't remember. And I said to him then, do you fancy doing that, basically, a diary of that? And he wasn't keen, as he said, it wasn't something on his radar. And then I was a bit disappointed because I, I really felt it could work because I'd read so many cricket books. I'd never written anything, mine, never written anything since I'd been in school. But I kind of felt that because that, that, I knew so much about Cots and I knew the, the look that he had on, on professional sport, which is humorous, detailed, but very, very perceptive as well. So, you know, there was never going to be an issue or Cots, you need to be a bit more deeper thinker about this. He, he covered everything. And I knew that whoever ended up writing Cots' book would, would have a good book. And then a few years went by, and I, again, Cots, I don't know if you remember this, we wrote the, the back here, and then it just came up with conversation, and then sort of like, should we do it then? And then at that point, even though I kind of had driven it, if you like, I got terrified then because I thought, oh, right, you've got to front up now. You've never written anything. Books tend to be about 90 to 120,000 words. Good luck. And uh, so I did have a little panic. I didn't tell him that, mind. Um, and then, as, as he said, the, the best thing really was he'd finished his career, so he had more time. He'd come back from, from Sussex, and we would. We'd just go out on the bike, just chat away. And the one thing I said to him was, if this is going to work, then I got to, from my perspective, be as professional as I can be. And therefore, if I'm going to ask you questions that might be a bit critical of you and something you did, then I've got to really. And again, that could have tested our friendship, um, but it didn't. And um, just, I'll never write a more enjoyable book. If I write a hundred books, I'll never write a more enjoyable book than that. It was a joy from start to finish. And, and luckily, even to this day, people, you just bump into people and, oh, you wrote Tony Cotty's book, best sports book I've ever read. And, um, and that's not me saying it because of me. I'm saying it because of his life and the way that, uh, but he shared everything and, and his honesty in that book is, is searing, I think. And um, so I'm very lucky boy for that to be my first sort of involvement. I don't, can I just say, I'm not sure how, uh, how X rated this, this podcast is allowed to be, but um, so I will. I think we're down, just but, about to find out. Well, no, I won't. I will turn it down <laughs> because I don't want to, I don't want to uh, use the actual words, but um, Don Shepard, uh, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago now, uh, was one of my heroes, obviously, because he's, he's a Gower lad. You know, my dad, my dad's uncle played with uh, Jack Tanner, played with, um, with, with Don growing up, Jim Presley, people like that. Well, I was commentating with uh, Don, and uh, so I thought I'd run it by Don, the book, you know, give it, you know. And he came back to me after about two or three weeks and he said, 
Tony, it's very good, he says. Very good, he said. But uh, there's 52 Fs in it. There's there's 36 Ws in it. There's there's about 22. Without going into the expletives, yeah. he said, you should tone it down a little bit, he said. I think you should tone <laughs> it down a little bit. So that's what, that was my feedback to, uh, to Dave. <laughs> was was there ever any doubt about the title of the book? Um, yes, from Dave, mm. if I remember correctly. I mean, yeah. for me, for me, it was, it was always going to be that because... Listen, I don't know if you want to go in. Do, do you want me to go into why? Or, or, yeah, yeah, or, I do. Yeah, well, well basically, um, I played against Tony Cotty, uh, Swansea City Reserves, West Ham Reserves. Dean Saunders looked at the team sheet and said, Christ, you're playing for both sides. And that, and he, every time we played against him, he'd score a hat-trick against us. You know, he's a, he's a quality player. Um, and obviously followed his career when I finished uh, at the Swans. And, and then... It was obviously the game of Canterbury with with Viv Richards. We were we were we were tottering a little bit. We wanted sixty odd six wickets left in in a, an era where two hundred doesn't seem a lot of runs in a one day game, but then it was. Uh, so most we chased, and I ended up batting with Viv and putting a sixty odd unbeaten partnership, getting the winning runs, and and it was a massive crowd that come up from Wales. BBC had followed every game for that year, Sunday League, because we hadn't won anything for twenty four years, and. Um, and they started singing. There's only two Tony Cotties. So, so I mean, for me, it, it was a no-brainer. It had a bit of humour, which is what the book was all about. And um, and it would it would ask a question for people who who, who didn't know that story. So I, I thought mm. it was just a, a you know a no-brainer, really. Yeah, my my idea at the time, I don't know if you remember this, Cots, was um, standing on the shoulders of giants because the the thing with with Viv Richards being his hero as a kid, and then. Again, probably mentioned this later, the last three first-class innings of Viv Richards' career, Cots was at the crease with him. And I just figured that just fitted perfectly, you know. But uh, and I, I think it's the only time we had a disagreement because with my my sort of writer's head on, I thought it was such a clever title, standing on the shoulders of the giant works different ways, you know. And then, honestly, and I'm not just saying this now, over the years, I go into schools and, and whatever, and if anyone mentions the book, They'll always say, "Oh, I tell you what, it's one of the best titles for a book I've ever known." <laughs> so, if Cot's in there, I claim it and tell him it was my idea. But uh, no, it's uh, it's a brilliant title, and uh, I'm I'm glad he stuck with it. The other striking thing about it, it, it the front cover of the book, it, it's a fantastic photograph of Tony. What looks like in in a kind of a a, a decaying uh, vetch field uh, with a bat and a ball. How did, how did that come about? The idea for the the front cover. One, one of our mates in the village, Gareth Williams, um, Gareth had played rugby with us um, in, in Christ Primary and, and at the school. And he's just one of life's nice guys, Gareth. He's a super, super lovely fella. And by the time we were doing this, we were in, what were we, late 30s, Cots, I think, something like that. Yeah. And obviously, we were all, the three of us, the same age. And, and by now, Gareth had become a professional photographer. So he'd worked with Evening Post. He was a freelance and um, I'd seen the cover of, I think it was a Bobby Charlton autobiography where it was all black and white. And the, the only bit of colour was his jersey. And it, it just seemed to really capture it. So uh, I said to Cox, look, I can get the keys to the Vetch because the Vetch was laid decay for about two years. And with my job in the council, um, one of the heads of department that I worked with, uh, Ewan Davis, he had physically the keys to the Vetch. So then I spoke to Gareth and, and sort of outlined the idea. And then Gareth said, look, tell him to bring a cricket bat, cricket ball, and we'll go down. And initially, Cots, if you remember, we were on the north bank 
it started to absolutely steeple down with rain. It was, and we only had like 45 minutes. That was the the, the, the window that we had. And uh, so Gareth was trying to take photographs from underneath the North Bank with the, the vetch behind uh, because it was so wet and it just wasn't working properly. And then we, it kind of stopped raining for five minutes. And he said, come on, let's get in the pitch then. And if you look at the cover, it's, it's like knee-length grass. There's weeds everywhere. And then it's just this classic thing where Cots has just chucked the cricket ball up. It's in midair. He's got a cricket bat on his shoulder. And Gareth captured it. And, uh, and the cricket ball is the bit in, in colour. And the rest is black and white. And again, you know, people say when they, when they talk about the book, they, they love the cover. And what was lovely was on, and I was talking to Gareth, funny enough, last week, and uh, on the launch night in the Dylan Thomas Centre, uh, Gareth offered to come along to take photographs. And, um, and we got the cover frame for him. And uh, he was at the back. I don't think he thanked us, mine, because he had to get through about 300 people with all his camera equipment to, to, to get uh, get the picture of the cover or cuts. But, uh, yeah, it, it was lovely. And, and, again, it's that village feel, you know, and, the book I wrote, Champion of Champions, is about three crosses. There was something about growing up in a village where we all had some sort of unique little bond, and it was so nice. Even if a, a different photographer had become available, we would have wanted Gareth to have done it, and uh, it just keeps it all uh, all together, friends together sort of thing. I would wonder if you could just pluck out a couple of memories uh, about the Vetch uh, and St Helens, um, you know, just to share those with us. And my my recollection of it, some fantastic characters in that in that changing room. Um, Dean Saunders was, was one of. Them. I remember him saying to me once in front of everyone, he came. Obviously, I'm five foot four at the time. Right, I said I was five foot five. I wish I'd said I was five foot four because I'd have been the smallest to have played. I think. But um, <laughs> at the time, I I wanted to put a little inch on, and that he came on to me. And obviously, that was my trademark. You know, and when you're young, anything that makes you different is not great. But I found as you get older, it. The fact I am short and and that makes me stand out. Funnily enough, but at the time, I, I you know I, it wasn't great. I didn't like getting the stick off crowds and things. I remember Dean coming on to me in my first or second day there and uh, walking up to me in front of everyone and staring right in front of my face. There's something wrong with you. I can't put my finger on it. What it is? I can't. I, there's something that makes you different to the rest of us. And I, and I, and I thought. Here it comes. Come on, yeah, you know, just falling off my key ring or something like that. And and I says, your eyes are too close together. And that was that was Dean's humour, you know, just kind of not mentioning the height thing and all that. So so I mean, there, there were some real characters and some huge huge names and cleaning boots, dressing room, cleaning the away changing room and bath and Terry Medwin, the youth youth uh, development officer. I had a big bath and he'd find one hair in that bath and he'd make me go and do it again. So you're training with Bob Latchford and Alan Curtis. What was in the, the place where they kept all the kit? Um, yeah, the boot room. The boot room. I mean, the boot room was filthy. You know, you you know, the, you, you throw a sh- you can give a shirt away now after every game. We had two sets of training kit. One morning, one afternoon, and the apprentices had to had to hang them up, put the boots uh, put the boots out, put all the kit out, and it was absolutely humming in there. You know, five days of sweat, five and a half days in the preseason was a Saturday morning, and and you'd have the same kit in there. And I remember Phil Williams, another character from Netley. Um, he was carrying a bit of weight. He loved his going around the Argyle chippy for uh, for beans and chips for his lunch. And they made him after training put a bin bag on and and go ten k's on a on a static bike. He couldn't come out. And it was like about ninety degrees in there. You know, he's coming out. He, you know, to be honest, he, he looking at much much uh, much life left in him at all. But that, that's that's the kind of things that were done. You weren't allowed to drink water in pre season because it give you a colic. You know, you have you have water now. If you play tiddlywinks, 
I mean, I remember I had a dead leg. John Mahoney came on to me. He said, oh, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? I've got a dead leg, Josh, dead leg. And I thought it was a bit of sympathy. He said, oh, I want injured till I was 29. What's the matter with you? Phil Bosma put an ultrasound on my leg, you know, and then Doug Livermore ringing him up. What's the way to Manchester? So he's on the phone, forgets to move the, the ultrasound on my leg. And um, I got a big burn. Like I smashed the phone out of his out of his hand and he just laughs at me. You know, so we had a, even had a wax bath that I think Ivor Orchard had put his foot in, to be honest, because it was never cleaned. And if you had a if you had a bad ankle, you had to put your foot in this wax bath and come out in a case of wax that literally was never changed in the time I was there, and it was ever changed, like I said, since the fifties. So it was so antiquated as well, you know, compared to what you'd envisage a professional environment is now. But as for growing up and, and enjoyment and and shaping you as a person. Oh, thank you very much for those three years that that uh, instilled in me a lot of of the values I still hold true to. Not the bullying, obviously, but but the, the fact of sticking up for myself and and um, and trying to get through a bit of adversity rather than buckling, you know. And St Helens, um, all uh, good memories for you. Yeah, for St Helens, fantastic. I don't know what my stats are in St Helens. I know they're a lot better than the rest of uh, my my career. Loved playing there. I, I was found there, if you like. Uh, Jeff Dujon was a pro at uh, Swansea Cricket Club at the time and um, the West Indian keeper. And he's a friend of my father's playing at playing Swansea. And Glamorgan were playing. He was thrown to me on the outfield. And Will Fuller, um, who was, I think, secretary, which would be chief exec now, he saw me, he shouted on the tan. I could the dad of that little lad come up and see me. And that got me into Tom Cartwright's indoor school and got me start noticed at, at a young age, nine, ten years of age. My dad and me opened the bat in there when I was 11 for Swansea Seconds. I made my debut there when I was 13 for the first team. Got my first 100 for Swansea there, age 14. Played with some fantastic players. Uh, Ezra Mosley, people like that, you know. West Indians, we had, Richie Richardson. It was just immense as a kid. Swansea Cricket Club to actually play for their first team was a huge, huge thing back then, you know. And um, Jeff Ellis was playing, uh, Exeter Morgan. He was a hard man as well because he was the pro. You know, he taught me a few things as well as a kid. And um, and then going on for Glamorgan, it was just spiritual home. Got I got a double hundred, my highest score there, and, and my second highest score for Glamorgan, 191 there. Just always felt that I was going to get runs. My dad always used to stand in the same place when I went out to bat and knew exactly where he was. Never moved until I was out. All the Swansea players supported me there. Dave, you know, Dave, Chris, all, all people like that, my friends who always should come and watch. And I never felt any pressure. I always felt it was... It was, um, it was where I'd want to play every single game, really. And you must still past it when you're coming back down to, to the Mumbles. You must pass by the ground. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's quite sad, actually, that they don't... I, th- I don't think they're going to play there again. I've heard whispers that there might not be a first-class game there. I mean, when I started at Glamorgan, predominantly it was made up of West Walians. You know, most of the youngsters came from the South Wales Cricket League. Obviously, now it's, it's, it's not like that. And I think a lot of that's got to do with when most of the games went to Cardiff because you need to watch your heroes firsthand. Um, that inspires you. And when there's no cricket, at, um, you can watch it on television, don't get me wrong, but to be there with your autograph book at the end of play and seeing fantastic players like Viv and um, Ian Botham, people like that, and you go up to the St. Helens bar and you, with your autograph book, book at six, seven years of age and you get them to sign. You know, it's magical, you know, just watch them play. That's the bit that's missing now, without a shadow, without for young West Whalians. You know, because it's quite a long way up to Cardiff. There's a lot of personal stuff that, that, that Tony kind of talks about in the book. I, I was wondering how you 
discussed those and, and you know how you kind of came to an agreement about what went in and what didn't go in? Yeah, it's a little bit that I said earlier on, I think. The, the best autobiographies that I'd read up to that point and, and still to this day are, are the honest ones. And uh, we had this sort of thing that, you know, we're so close, we can finish each other, finish each other's sentences, you know, we, we just know exactly what we, we're about and everything. And I would often say to Cot, oh, so-and-so's written a book, have a look at it, it's really good. And equally then, if it wasn't a great book, and I'd say, have a look at this, do you think that, and whoever it was, say, Paul Gascon, I know that's not what it would be, but the, the ghostwriter would put words that you know that this sports person would never use in a million years because we've seen and been interviewed after Match of the Day or on Test Match Special or whatever it was. And then the writer almost puts their stamp into the, into the book too much. So I was absolutely never going to do that. I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to, to portray Cotts and Cotts' voice as best as I could, knowing him so well. But also, you know, it's it's life, isn't it? And and I think the honesty of life means that you've got to you've got to talk about things that a person buying the book would expect to read. We were out on the bike one day, and uh, we were talking about this, that, and the other. And he said, um, "We got onto the was it ninety four? You're the big year, Cot." And yeah. um, uh, David Lloyd was coach. I think Athers was captain. I think, and uh, and Cots was. It's come out in other people's books since then. He was discussed as, as going to play for uh, for England. And um, I think it was like a, a one vote that, that he didn't get picked. And uh, so we're chatting about this now, whatever it is, 15 years later. And um, and as I said earlier, you know, I said to him, I'm going to be professional. I'm going to ask questions and, and what have you. And then I said, why do you think you didn't get picked? And he said, oh, I, it's because, you know, Ramps was playing well and, and Gray Mick was going to get another chance and John Crawley, whatever. And I said, mm, I don't think it was. And he said, what do you mean? I said, um, I think it's because you were short. And I thought he was going to hit me off my bike. And um, we didn't have an argument, but it got a bit frosty. And I don't know if you remember this, Cots, but at the time, as Anthony said earlier, we we used to have the, the chat and I would just write up something about that chat. So none of it was put together in any form of like a story at that point. So there were lots of disparate things. And in a lot of these disparate things were stories about Cots playing cricket where the crowd would give him stick about his height. And then, I don't know what it was, but a week later, he wrote me up and he said, right, I've been thinking about what you said. I've never admitted this to anyone before, but yeah, I did have a thing about my height. And that's why I, I bit the other day. And actually, I want to deal with it, but I think we should deal with it in one big hit. I don't want the book to be, oh, here's chapter 12, another story about being short. So as you've read the book, Steve, you know, chapter one, we deal with it and get it out of the way. And obviously, Cots deals with it humorously, but also the, the realities of that as well. So that was it, really. It was just, and ultimately, there was no way I was going to demand that something went in that was personal. But I think because our friendship was so strong, I could ask him these questions. And then he would sort of talk about it, think about it, and then that would go in the book. So again, being my first book, I didn't really know how to do it, if I'm being honest. So the only thing I could do was was try to be honest with Cots, get as much detail out of him as I could, and then just come to a consensus. Are we going to use that? Should we temper it? Should we? And, and I think that's what gives the book the honesty, really. Is And again, as I said earlier, Cots was so open about everything. There was nothing that was off limits. And that shines through, I think, in, in his story. One of the most difficult chapters in the book to read was uh, about uh, Umar Rashid. You would like to tell us a little bit about him and your friendship with him, Tony? Uma was one of those blogs who was everybody's second favourite friend in the in the changing room. He was just a lovely blog. He was like an Ali G type of character, a real humorous guy. 
And when, when things, if something was going to happen daft to someone, it would happen to him. You know, he's that kind of bloke. Supreme, supreme talent. Uh, I say left arm spinner, left, really languid left arm batter, top player. So we, we, we'd been to Grenada uh, on tour and it was it was the same week that Ben Holyoke uh, sadly passed away in Australia. We were talking about it. Now, Umar um, didn't drink. Uh, we had a day off and we were all going to meet him at Concord Falls uh, Beauty Spot the following day. And a few of the boys had a bit of a hangover, so it didn't go. His brother had come over with his girlfriend to, to watch Umar play. And they went up to the, his Concord Falls. And we only know from, as an American preacher, it was such a secluded place, but he, he said he heard what was said. His, his brother had a, a cine camera, as was the day to take photos. The girlfriend and Umar were in the, this, this pool, which was about 10 strokes to either side. And Umar, was, you know, in the mornings, we have a warm-up uh, swim. And he, was, he wasn't a very good swimmer at all. And he said, wait till you see my brother, Burhan. He's worse than me. You know, and uh, they must have egg, egged him on. To, he put his cine camera down and it was like a babbling brook with a 50 foot. You know, you go into the pool, but it was 50 foot deep. And he must have took some water on and, and uh, both of them drowned. And Peter Moore's got the call that they were missing. And we, did, we thought maybe they were just... Missing, missing, you know, they'd gone for a swim and then gone walking somewhere or whatever because we'd never been up there. Um, I was rooming with him at the time. And the last thing on the side of his bed was was a half-eaten muffin. I can remember it now. Um, I had to go through all his clothes to make sure that, uh, you know, any anything that needed to be saved or, or like phones and things like that. So, yeah, it was... It was something you don't expect to happen. I think you feel immortal in the changing room, really. You know, all the boys together, you can get away with most things. And um, my Peter Moore's at the phone, his dad, and tell him that both his boys are drowned. There's no worse phone call than that. You know, uh, how, he got, how he got through that, I have no idea, really. But um, we flew on the next day, simple as that, really. And then put money together for some uh, rescue equipment to... To be, to be put there but um, yeah it shook everyone up massively that was I think 2002 Umar used to sing this Hangman song um, and he, he, he was very passionate the way he sang it it was obviously something that had been passed down by, by his parents I'd never heard it before I've still got it written down on a postcard of Concord Falls so I've still kept that so I wrote the words down and um, yeah it, it was one of those things I thought shall I because we were on the bus because everyone knew the song. You know, there was all sing songs after the game. Everyone had a song. That was his song. And I thought, should I start it off? And I never did. One thing about that, Stephen, before you go on, is um, when we did the book, Cots was brilliant in saying, look, there's no pressure here. We, we got two years to do this. So we were never, we didn't bother trying to get a publisher until literally the last full stop was put on it. And, um, and we got to that stage. It took us about two years, Cots, I think, wasn't it, to, to get it all done. We were over when Cots lived in the AD and... Um, I guess the book was done, really. And uh, we talked about Viv. We talked about winning championships and talked about going to Sussex, leaving Glamorgan, and all the stuff was there. And then we were sat in Cot's kitchen. And, you know, we've all got a drawer, yeah? So when you open the drawer, it's all got lots of different stuff in it. And, and Cot said, I tell you what we do. He said, I've got a drawer here. It's got lots of bits and bobs. Um, see what anything in you that, that um, if there's a story that we've missed. And he put his hand in, got the drawer out, and... And he said, oh, God, look at this. And he handed me that postcard he just mentioned. And I read it. I got quite emotional because the, the words of that song, that, the Hangman song, now we know them in context of, of what sadly happened to Umar. And I, I turned to Cots and I said, oh, God, I've forgotten about this. Were you on that trip? And he said, I was his roommate. And that story may not have been in the book 
if we'd have been under pressure to to get it done in six months, eight months. Do you know what I mean? So, and I remember going home. I I, I wrote down the, the words myself of the of the the lyrics of all the chapters in that book. That was the one that I absolutely felt I got to get this right because it was it needed to to have that emotion of 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 what Cots went through as well. You know, losing uh, a roommate, a teammate, a friend, and. Um, I often think back to the, the, the that draw. It sounds weird, but um, you know, and, and on another day, that postcard might have stayed hidden, and that story wouldn't have been in the book. So um, again, on on such things, uh, things turn. Yeah, and then to be fair, just on that, I mean, it's not something you want to put in your book. That that you know, it's not something that when you really, it's it's very personal to other people, and there was a, a lot of thought within that how that would come across as well, because obviously for his family and that. Yeah, um, which hopefully it came came across well because it wasn't something really in a very anecdotal, humorous type of book that it, it stands out like you know, like a sore thumb in the book, really, isn't it? There's two chapters that are like that. One is that, and the other one is my thoughts on the game when when I finished. Those are the mm-hmm. two that are so opposite to the rest of the book. Um, I'm going to frighten you both uh, a little bit now. The, the book was published in 2008, so uh, my question to you both is. David first, because this was the first kind of step in your career as a writer. What, what's happened to you both since? And you can bring us right up to date, David, with that, if you want, and tell us all about your uh, your trip to London yesterday. That book changed my life. Uh, I had a third-year career in local government that um, I loved the people. I loved going to work there, but I never had a job. I never had a role that I was passionate about. Sport was and is and always has been my life. And, and I, I seem to be getting into this career deeper and deeper that I just didn't want to be in. So for Cots to trust me with the story and then the book getting published and, and what have you. And uh, and again, Cots, I don't know if you remember this, but about a month after the book was published, uh, Chris Peregrine, a, a friend of ours uh, from the Union Post, got in touch to say, would we go to Cotsart Comprehensive to... Um, to speak to some kids about sport and reading. So I'd never done anything like that before. Cots obviously done after dinner speaking. Um, we went to the, the school. We didn't know till we got there that the they were sort of 14, 15-year-old lads and they were the ones that were most at danger of being lost to education. So they were quite quite a tough group. And um, we just assumed that we'd go in, sit down, get a cup of tea and and these, these lads would ask us questions, you know. And uh, we walked in and the teacher just said, um, okay, everyone sit down, put that chair down. And then uh, she said, right, this is David, this is Tony, off you go. So I kind of looked at Cots and thought, what do we do now? And then Cots, like a trooper, just started talking. He clapped his hands together like that, clapped his hands, right. And then he just spoke for like 10 minutes. And we did it for two hours. At the end, these lads all queued up in a line to shake our hands, get autographs and stuff. And the teachers were just, they couldn't believe it, that these these lads, and, and we drove home in Cots' car. And I said, that's what I want to do, mate. If, if writing can do anything for me, that's what I want to do. And so the long story short is that um, from that day on, I was lucky that the council saw something in me potentially going into school. So I did that um, on behalf of the council for a little while. Um, I still go into schools now, which I, which I love doing. But the book opened doors for me, really. Um, a couple of years later, I was fortunate enough to work at the school when Ashley Williams came in to speak to the kids. Um, we kind of got on well on that day. Um, the following season, the Swans got promoted to the Prem. Um, and I just thought, oh, nothing to lose here. So I text Ashley and said, look, I've got an idea for a book. Would you like to meet? And again, going back to the Jonathan Agnew thing earlier on, I just said to Ash, nobody's done a diary really of of being a Premier League footballer at the time. And it was the first season for the Swans in the Prem. And, and Ash, luckily for me, said yes. So I worked with him on that book. And, and I've never looked back really, but I was able to give him 
Koch's book to say, look, don't don't judge this on on me. Have a read of this book and uh, and make your decision. So again, without Koch's book, that wouldn't have happened. I've written several other books since, got into writing children's books, and James Hook approached me a couple of years ago to, to do a, a potential series of books with him. And, yeah, to bring you up to date, last night we were shortlisted for the, the Telegraph Sports Book of the Year Awards at the Oval, and, and we, we won. <laughs> so we won the, uh, the Children's Sports Book of the Year category. I, can't, I, I still struggle to speak about it because Cots always used to have a go at me saying you're not confident enough about yourself in various things. And um, I remember when the book wasn't getting published um, back in 2007, probably, he said, do you think this is going to work? And I went, I don't think so. And he said, why? I said, oh, things like this don't happen to people like me. And he, again, he got angry. He said, you wouldn't have lasted two minutes in sport with an attitude like that. You've got to believe. You've got to, you've got to put the work in and believe it's going to be good enough. With Cox wise words, I didn't think for a minute we were going to win last night. So there we are. We got, got the award. And um, the most surreal part of that, actually, was the winner of the next award when we were backstage getting photographs done was the Cricket Book of the Year. And David Gower had an involvement. So he walked in last night. I'm just on cloud nine, shaking that I've won this award with with James Hook. The door opens and in walks one of my childhood heroes. And um, what a gent he was last night. He was so lovely. So, yeah, so that's it. And and I do. I owe it all to Cots. Simple as that. And the first person to ring me this morning to congratulate me was Cots. So um, that says a lot about him, I think. You asked the question very, very early on about what role my father played in. And, and Dave elaborated and talked about his mother, Anna. And it, I, it would be remiss of me not to mention what she, the part she played because my mother used to, uh, on cold nights, um, like dark and neat at the knoll, right, where there were break-ins and things like that, she would be there when I was having my indoor nets for, from eight to, uh, 6 till 8 o'clock every night, run me to all games. And, and fierce is critic, I have to say, my mother, but but certainly she, she was massively supportive of me. And I just want to get that in because I, I know I didn't mention that at the start and and I mean, you know, I'd, I'd hate myself I didn't because she was absolutely outstanding, uh, you know, and you need that support definitely um, when you're starting off. If, you, if you're playing sports, especially how I was, it, it was instilled in me in that Swansea City dressing room that you, you've you got to be very cutthroat driven and whatever it takes at a certain stage, and, and especially in that era. And, and and that's the way I was. I mean, people who meet me now think I'm very mellow, laid back and, and just want to joke. I wasn't like that when I when I Certainly the early part of my career, I certainly wasn't. And then you, you get to the second part where when you play two years in the dressing room and for some unknown reason, you think your voice is more important than your performance. I've seen it so many times, you know, and, and I, I have to say it, it happened to me. I thought I should have been going on an England A tour when uh, Adrian Dale, David Hemp, uh, Steve James and all them went. And I was kind of the only one out of that Glamorgan side that didn't, didn't go on, on one of those A tours. And my behaviour was poor. And, and, you know, because I kept it all inside. If I had a couple of drinks, it all comes to me. And, and I mean, Dave was one of the, was the person who said, listen, you need to pull your neck in here because your behaviour is rubbish when you're out. And it was all about that pent-up anger of, oh, I, I try and keep it in, or it doesn't bother me, it doesn't bother me. And, and that was my little, I call it the political stage, where I, you know, where I probably kept it in more than most, but, Ultimately, my behaviour was poor. And luckily, I, I believe I got out of it quite quickly because the longer you're in that, you're toxic in the changing room. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And when you come out the other end, generally, you're still in the team. You, you, you've you got a couple of very good years behind you and you start to, to see that you're just a cog in the team and the more helpful you are to others, be the best 12th man you can ever be. A good team has got 
the majority of their players in that last third, and maybe a couple in the first third, and, and hardly anybody in that middle third, hopefully nobody in that middle third. And, and that's how I see the dynamics of a change room. I still think that's the case now. And life, do you think you could apply some of that kind of theory and understanding to what we're like in life? Uh, and perhaps that third stage is the stage when we all feel we've, we've, we've done as much as we can and we're happy with where we are and, and kind of comfortable in our own skin, if you like. I think you're definitely comfortable in your own skin. I mean, uh, the job that uh, I did up until six months ago, which was basically um, looking after the sponsorship budget and hosting the events, you know, the the networking events and the and the sporting events at the cricket club, building relationships. I mean, I, I I could never have done that in probably the first two stages because I, I would never have made any mates in the first stage one. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been a very likable bloke if I was in stage two trying to do do that. You you've got to be um diplomatic. You 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 take all the skills. That's one great thing that comes out of playing sport is that you don't realise it at the time, but you, you get a lot of transferable skills. You know, you talk to the supporter, you talk to the chairman, you talk to the sponsor, you've got to interact with your teammates, the coach, you've got to take advice, you've got to take discipline, all those kind of things, and know when to speak and know when to shut up as well. And and I mean, that helped me massively in, in the role I did for, for 12 years at the club. And I was a much more mellow person because I was in that phase three in my life, if you like, than, than I was when I when I first started. So it massively helped me. Um as you, I think you you know, I, I gave that away six, well, four or five months ago now. I've got a, an ice cream, gelato ice cream um, cafe on the beach in Shoreham. And I love it. But ultimately, it was time for a change through COVID. And, and I'm getting that interaction with people, you know, on a daily basis, which uh, which I really enjoy. And your friendship, strong as ever? The friendship's definitely as strong as it was, but it's very much remote now than rather than, than, um, than it was, you know, prior to two years ago. So that's that would be certainly not a not a end of year resolution, but it's certainly something that's uh you know that I know that, that'll change over the next um, few months hopefully. Yeah, it's quite funny actually because it's a classic thing that you don't need to see a true friend every day, every week, every month. And Cots and I pick up if we haven't seen each other for three months. It it, it literally doesn't matter. And um we had a long chat about 10 days ago, didn't we? And talked about lots of deep stuff, which we always end up doing. And at no point do you ever have to warm up or, you know, I'll give you a ring later. It's just straight in. And uh, when the first lockdown ended, Koch came home and uh, stayed in a, in a house of a friend of ours. And um, he said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, oh, I'm, I'm free and nothing. He said, oh, fancy going for a walk. Now, normally people go for a walk down Singleton Park or whatever. So I said, come on, we'll go and walk from Brimmill. We walked down to the Vetch. We walked into the marina. We went back to St. Helens and about three hours, something like that. We didn't stop talking. You know, the memories came back about him at the Vetch. And, and yeah, he, he's, I say to everybody, he's my best mate, always has been, always will be. Um, and um, just blessed to have known him really that day, backing three crosses, getting, getting put on the desk next to him. And as I said earlier, knocking the door later on that day and wouldn't have dreamt for a minute, I suppose, 48 years later, whatever it is, that, um, uh, yeah, best mates. And sport will always be the first language of choice in that friendship? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
when we when we run out of things to talk about with regards to sport, he starts going on like he has there, and I get full of emotion. My father said, <laughs> used to tell me. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, yeah, sport. You know, it's it's not. He's got a massive love of cycling as well, which I haven't got, but I picked up quite a bit of that now. I mean, yeah, any sport is always um, is always forefront, but it'd be nice to pick up again. You know, we we quite like the area we were brought up, and I, I know that's come across quite a lot. And, we both got a massive love of the Gower, especially, and and getting down there. There's lots of haunts where, where I had my summer holidays down Port Aynan, um, Culver Hole, and all those places, Rosilli and uh, Worms Head, and all that. So we tend to get down there quite a bit because uh, quite nostalgic, and you know, going back mm. to to places that you used to used to go to quite a lot as a kid. Thanks, thank you ever so much for the last hour and a bit. It's been lovely listening to you both. Cheers, thank fantastic. you. Soon. Great stuff. Can you can you cut him out? Because I don't like him at all. Yeah, well, <laughs> unfortunately, he's on the front cover of the book that we're talking about, so there's no, there's no options there. Thanks, Jess. It's been lovely. Thank Thanks you, Stephen. Okay. Cheers, mate. Many thanks to Tony and David for giving up their time for the podcast. You can still find copies of the book, There's Only Two Tony Cotties for Sale, online. Anyone interested in David's other books, including the one written with Ashley Williams and the series of prize-winning books written in collaboration with James Hook, should head to David's website, which is david-brayley, B-R-A-Y-L-E-Y, dot co.uk. And if you ever find yourself in Shoreham, you can visit Tony's Ice Cream Parlour. It's called Cots and Lins, and you can see all the wonderful stuff they do online at Cots and Linz, that's C-O-T-T-S and L-I-N-Z dot co dot U-K. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Do join us next time when we'll be exploring midweek cricket in Swansea. So no doubt there'll be some more stories about the great game of cricket from the great country of Wales. Hoilvau, bye for now. Story you have Nigadani. Macrosek Gisilti. A bossuch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail dot com. Nate, El Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nay, Intidalin Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.